Thank you, Lord. Aren't you glad about that truth that he's able to do exceedingly and abundantly? Above all, we're able to ask or think through the power that works within us. Indeed, God is able. And aren't you glad that your possibilities are not limited to your color, to your cash, to your community? Amen. Or to your concern. But it's only limited to your capacity to believe because all things are possible for those that believe. And for that, we give the Lord thanksgiving. For this, we give the Lord praise. Well, let's take our Bible once again and make a confession of faith so that we can all be in the same spirit of faith. Say this after me. This is my Bible. Though there are many in the world, this one is mine. I can be what it says I can be. I can do what it says I can do. I can have what it says I can have. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. He that comes to God must believe that he is. And he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Because I am a diligent seeker of God, my life will be better because I have heard the word of faith. Do you believe that? I believe that. Let's make our lives better by hearing the word of God. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The book of Hosea. And we are in chapter one. And this morning we gave the introduction to this marvelous prophet. Hosea is prophesying to an Israel during the time of national prosperity, but also great moral corruption and decline. Israel has gone after Baal and we found out that the word Baal is usually referred to as Balaam in the Old Testament. And it was many gods. Baal was the agricultural god of that region. And there were many Baals for many things. Baals for thunder, Baals for the storm, Baals for clouds, Baals for the rain, Baals for sunlight. And they worshiped Baal in the mountains and in the hills and in the fields and in the high places. And Israel has gone after Baal, worship other gods. God then raises up this little prophet called Hosea. And he tells him to go marry a woman named Gomer and bring forth children of harlotry. And this morning, as we laid the foundation, we said that idolatry is the only sin that not only impacts the sinner, but it impacts the next generation. It's one of those few sins that God says in the Ten Commandments. If you worship idols, he said, if you have other gods before me, take my name in vain. But if you make unto me graven images, this sin I will visit to the third and the fourth generation. But I show mercy to thousands of those that love me. We found out that idolatry will bring sin to the next generation. There's a transgenerational consequence for this sin. And the lie that many people believe is that we sin privately and we're not hurting ourselves, but this sin hurts the next generation. We see then when they came even out of restoration uh, to the time of Nehemiah, that in the last chapter of Nehemiah, the sin was so ingrained in the people that they had married themselves to the Ashdodites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. And Nehemiah chapter 14 says, and half their children spoke the tongue of Ashdod, but could not speak the tongue of Judah. 
That is problematic in our generation because we have a generation that comes to the house of the Lord and they can speak the tongue of the world, but they cannot speak the tongue of praise. And Nehemiah 14, 23 says, and Nehemiah got angry at this situation because they had given their sons and daughters to foreigners. And he took them and he plucked them up and he plucked out their hair and he made them swear unto God saying that they would not give their sons and daughters to foreign gods and their sons to foreign women and their daughters to foreign men. And then he went in and he found out that even the priest had intermarried with those that were foreigners and he, and he, and he, and he struck them and drove them out of the temple and he cleansed the temples and set new priests and new Levites in place. When Hosea marries Gomer, they bring forth children of whoredom. And here's the situation that we find in chapter one as we move to chapter two. Gomer stays faithful to Hosea for a while. And then all of a sudden they bring forth their first child in verse three, chapter one, verse three, a son. His name is called Jezreel, which means I will scatter. And God tells Israel, if you keep on doing what you're doing, I will scatter you. It was God's desire to gather his people. But when God's people get in trouble and they do not respond to the voice of the prophet and they have, listen, repeated, unrepentant sin, repeated, unrepentant sin. God can deal with our sin if we're willing to repent. But when it's repeated and unrepentant sin, then God says, I will scatter you. It's kind of interesting. They had two disbursements. Scattering happened with Israel in 722 BC when the Assyrians came in and took Israel, the northern tribes, captive. 586 BC, Jerusalem held out a little bit longer than the Babylonians took them over. And then all of a sudden, the Persians were overrun by both. The Medes and the Persians got together one night because of Belshazzar's sin, a foreign king that wanted to just think that he could just, uh, that he could just, uh, make an offense before God. And when he demanded that the vessels that had been brought from Jerusalem be drunk from at a pagan's temple, God writes on the wall, you've been weighed in the balance and you've been found wanting and judgment comes. And all of a sudden the Medes and the Persians get together one night and now everyone's in Persian captivity. History tells us when they come out of Persian captivity, there's one dominant tribe. It is called the tribe of Judah. 10 tribes kind of pass away. A lot of people have written a lot of speculation on the lost tribes of Israel. And because the dominant tribe was called the tribe of Judah, then the Israelites became known as Jews for short for Judah. But still they remained in sin and they chased other gods and they did not learn their lessons. So by the time we come to the first era before Christ, all of a sudden we find out during that common era that by the time Malachi writes, they are going back to their own ways. God scattered them. They gathered and then they scattered because of sin. Gomer stays faithful for a while. When she stays faithful for a while, she disappears on Hosea. And she disappears and when she comes home, she's pregnant. And this time in verse number eight, she brings forth on this time another child. 
It's a daughter this time, and she calls her name Lahrama. And when she has Lahrama, her name means no mercy. God says, not only have you brought forth the son Jeshua, and I have promised now that I will scatter you, but now he says, I will have no mercy upon you. Because there's a line that God has that he will give us space to repent. But then there's a line that we cross where there is no repentance. Judas crossed that line. Israel crossed that line and God says, I've given you time. I've given you voice. I've given you space, but there's been no repentance. So now I would no longer uh, pardon you and have mercy upon you, O house of Israel. But I will take you away and you will learn your lesson. And then in verse seven, he also says, and I will have no mercy on the house of Judah. He prophesies that they will go away into captivity. Gomer then remains faithful with these two children, Jezreel and Laharama. And all of a sudden she disappears again. Her husband has not been with her, but when she returns home, she's pregnant again the third time. This time in verse number eight, if you will, this child that comes in and she is pregnant with, she calls his name, Lo am I, not my people. I will not be your God in verse number nine. So you have Jezreel, I will scatter you. Verse number four, verse number six, we have Laharama, no mercy upon you. And then finally, Lo am I in verse number nine, you are not my people. And yet God begins to prophesy in verse number 10. He says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as a sand of the sea, which cannot be measured by number. And it shall come to pass in a place in which it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said of them. You are the sons of the living God. Thy children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appointed for themselves one head and they shall come up out of the land and shall uh, and for great will be the day of Jezreel. Even when God is saying, I'm going to scatter you. I will have no mercy upon you. You are not my people. There's still a word of hope. Aren't you glad that no matter how bad we get, God still gives us a word of hope. He said, even though I'm going to scatter you, I'm not going to have any mercy on you. You are not my people yet. I'm going to bring you back and gather you. And you're going to dwell in this land because God had already spoken a word over his people. And see, God's word's not like our word. Even if we mess it up, he's still faithful to his word. And he said, even if I have to bring my word to pass in the next generation, I'm going to bring it to pass. Aren't you glad for a faithful God that's not fail on his word? I will bring it to pass. Follow me in chapter two and verse number one. And that day I will call your brother, lo am I, my people. And he says, and uh, you will be called, uh, call your sisters, Ruhamah. The ones I love. He says, but now bring charges against Israel, your mother, for she is no longer my wife and I am no longer her husband. Tell her to remove 
The prostitute's makeup from her face, says New Living Translation. In chapter 2, verse number 2, and, and the calling that exposes her breast, the clothing that exposes her breast, it says more, uh, otherwise, I will strip her as naked and as she was on the day of her birth that she was born, and I will leave her to die of thirst as in a dry, barren wilderness, and I will not love her children, and they were conceived in prostitution. This morning we looked at the picture of a holy man marrying a prostitute, a harlot, if you will. We looked at the problem that we have divided loyalties and we've gone after other gods. We've looked at the produce, children of harlotry. But tonight let's look at the context. And the context now is that Israel has gone after other gods and God now chastens Israel with his words. And he says, your harlotries are in my sight. And now I am going to expose her. Hear me, saints. God, even in our faults and in our flaws, has no desire for exposure. But if exposure is the only way that gets us to turn, God will do it. I don't believe that God is ever pleased with seeing churches' names in the newspaper in a negative way. I believe that there has to be private dealing with leaders and with congregations way before something goes public. But if that's the only way God can get us to stop and to turn and to repent, God will use any means necessary. Even when he uses the Assyrians and the Babylonians to judge Israel, even the prophet struggled. That was Jonah's struggle. When God tells him to go up to Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, and say, prophesy to them and tell them to return or I'm going to destroy them. And Jonah said, I'm not going because if they turn, you will, uh, you will save them. And he said, God, I don't understand you. He said, because we're bad. He said, but man, those people in Syria are nasty. He said, they are worse than we are. And would you use them to punish us? And God said, I'll use whatever instrument I desire to. And he said, and if you don't turn because you know my word, You know better. I'll use anything that I can to turn you around. See the context. If you were the holy prophet, uh, if you were the holy prophet Hosea, think about Hosea's kids going down to the synagogue in the morning. Jezreel, Loharama, and Loamai. And Hosea is taking his kids down for worship. And somebody looks at Hosea and says, hey man. You're that holy man, Hosea, aren't you? And he says, yes, I am. He said, what kind of holy man are you? And what kind of family is this? I was with your wife down at the brothel last night. And God says to Israel, that's what you're doing to me. He says, you have divided loyalties. Now you have divided affections. And the context is that Israel has gone after other things, just like the church who is Christ's bride has gone under after other things. We are relying upon other things to be our source. Watch this text because he goes on and he says in chapter two, verse number four, he says, listen, your mother has played the harlot and um, she has gone forth and she is conceived and um, has uh, behaved shamefully. And, and she has said, 
I will go after my lovers. And listen to what, what she says. She says, uh, who has given me my bread, who has given me my work, water, who has given me my wool, who has given me my linen, who has given me my oil, and who has given me my drink. One of the challenges that I have with this text is it says, therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and your wall you and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths and she will chase her lovers, but will not overtake them. She will seek them, but will not find them. They will say, I will go and return to my first husband. Then she will say, I'll go and return to my first husband. And then it shall be better for me than now. You see, what was happening was this woman, Gomer, got so much involved in divided affection that she started attributing to the pagan gods everything God had done for her. Look at the list there in verse number five. She stopped giving God the credit who had been her bread. She started saying, God hasn't been my source. He's not been my life and bread is symbolic of life. What is the source of your life today? Because a man's life does not consist of the things that we possess. Some people just fall apart when their things get taken away from them. And friends, your life does not consist of the things that you possess. But when you believe that your possessions makes you something is wrong because our identity is not finding the things that we have, but in who we are owned by and who we belong to. Our identity comes from the father. She starts saying, oh, no, 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 no. You've not done anything for me, Hosea. And she said, it was my lovers that gave me bread. Next of all, she said, it was my lovers that gave me the water. And water in the text is symbolic of the washing of water by the word. She said, they're the ones that's been giving me the revelation. I'm surprised at preachers that preach that don't ever open the Bible anymore. And I watch a lot of television. We're on on Trinity Broadcast Network in our context, uh, in our city. And we're on there. But I watch that channel sometime and I see preachers that just stand up and talk. And, I mean, they don't even have a Bible. Don't even quote a Bible verse. Sometimes make jokes and say, if you expect, I heard a preacher say, if you expect to hear a Bible verse from me, I'm not that kind of preacher. And see, when we've gone after other things and we say, no, you didn't give me no word, God. My waters and my washing of the water by the word, I don't have that no more. My word came from someplace else. And when I hear more quotes from things like financial magazines, motivational speakers, classics, then I hear from the word of God. We've gone after other lovers. And then we wonder why we're weak and we're anemic. Hear me now. In motivational seminars, speaking from motivational thought. Uh, That's great to quote other motivational speakers. But when people come to the church, when they come to the house of the Lord, they ought to get something. They don't get out there in 166 other hours. They ought to get something from the word of God. Somebody ought to say, open your Bible and turn to this page. Look at this chapter. Look at this verse because man does not live by bread alone. Of every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And she starts saying, you didn't give me no word. And now. We're raising up a generation of preachers who are taught to look every place on the internet to get a sermon. In fact, there are sermons.com. You don't even have to study anymore. You just go out and download a sermon. Just download it. Saturday night, highlight a few things, put in a few stories and feed it to the people. I believe God's people deserve better than that. But when our affections are divided. 
We go after other things. The people become weak and anemic. She says, my wool, that's my covering came from somebody else. There's a lot of people I'm surprised when I hear people talking about who their covering is, who their mentors are. And I was surprised a few years ago when I heard a popular pastor say, I'm being mentored by Donald Trump. And I said, Donald Trump. And friends, when we start saying, God, you're no longer my covering. And now we're being mentored by people that I question where they are in their salvific journey. I'm being nice. (laughs) But I have to ask a question like the prophets ask sometimes, do they know the Lord? And people are being mentored and they're saying, that's my covering. That's my mentor. And friends, she said, no, 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 no. My lovers have been my wool. She said, my lovers have been my linen. Linen was the priestly garments. They're the ones that are teaching me how to dress. And I'm finding out that there's a lot of people in the church that are especially involved in the arts of the church, singing, playing, a movement in the church for those churches that move into those various phases of art. And they're dressing like they came out of the world. Their covering is no longer a covering of righteousness, but they're trying to look in the act of being relevant and contemporary like everybody out there. Now, listen, I don't think we have to dress weird. I do believe that we ought to dress decent. And there is appropriate and inappropriate behavior still today in God's house. And yet she's saying, no, 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 you didn't give me my linen. You're not my covering. You didn't give my linen. You didn't cover me in your righteousness. No, they covered me. They showed me how to dress. She said, you didn't give me no oil. You're not the source of my power. You didn't give me my anointing. You didn't give me authority. There's a lot of people out there now telling uh, some of our young ministers and young uh, people, especially the gospel music artists, come to me. The gospel music industry is what I call it. And they'll say, come to me and I'll give you a platform. Listen to me. If somebody can put you on a platform, they can push you off a platform. I'd rather wait for God to build me up to the place that he wants and to have man create some platform. And it's the anointing that lifts you up. But she said, no, somebody else gave me mine. She said, you didn't give me any drink. You didn't give me any wine. She said, you didn't give me any joy. And that's really when we begin to experience divided affection. When somehow we lose the joy of the Lord. When all of a sudden we start doing things for the Lord and worshiping and our word and our services out of duty. Well, I got to go to church. I got to sing. I got to usher. Yeah, I got to get out here and shovel this snow. And when, when, and when, you, when, when it gets to the place where my attitudes, I just got to do this. Oh, I have to do this rather than I get to do this. Don't you remember the day when you got to go to church and you say, man, I just can't help but get to the house of the Lord. Don't you remember the day you're just glad if somebody just asked you to pass out a bulletin, just glad to be used to do something in the house of the Lord. But see, after we go along for a while, we kind of lose the joy and we get into duty and into routine. And all of a sudden there is no joy. There is no gladness. The Bible says that we ought to serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. That verse doesn't say serve the Lord with sadness. 
And friends, sometimes we move into arenas where we're doing things out of duty and out of responsibility. And all of that is critical because we do need some regularity. Listen, uh, ministry is not only the glorious, but it's also uh, sometimes we got to put up with in ministry with the goofy. But ministry also, you got to put up with what I call the grind. And when you got to put up with the grind, that's when you get into the routine. And part of what I ask God to do is not let me become a robot and mechanical in everything I do. Let the waters of life still flow through me because it's you that gave me my wine. But here, when we have divided affections like Gomer in chapter two and verse number five, she starts attributing everything, her word. She starts attributing her life, her word, her covering, her righteousness and her worship. She starts attributing all of the oil and all of the power and all of her joy to someone else. See, the consequence of idolatry, consequence of idolatry is that God God will come and he will judge. He will put up for our foolishness for a moment because he still constantly desires to woo us back to him. Even when we have lost our minds, God still comes after us. Look at your neighbor and tell him when you were crazy, he was chasing you down. Go ahead and tell him. Because sometimes we just lose our mind. We just lose our mind sometimes. And many of us have had temporary lapses in our mind. I was in Atlanta, Georgia and talked to a lady and she went home and she went to a family reunion and her and her sister stayed at her house. I said, well, how's your family? Are your parents still living? She said, my father's passed on, but my mother's 85 years old. And she says, kind of interesting, Pastor. She said, I'm 45 years old. My sister's 50. And she said, and my sister's not walking with the Lord. Used to, but not to, not now. And she said, and my sister standing in the, on the foyer saying some words that are not spoken in my mother's house. My mother's an old Pentecostal woman is what she reported to me. And she said, girl, what you saying out there? And she said, well, I'm grown. And I say what I want to say. And her mother just starts saying, mm, help me, Jesus. <laughs> and then she said, and pastor that insult the injury. She said, my sister took a cigarette out of her purse and lit it up in my mother's foyer. And she said, her mother said, girl, you know, I don't allow no smoking up in my house. And her daughter looked at her and put her little hands on her hip with her cigarette and said, I'm grown. And before she, the girl said, before I knew it, my mother, 85 years old, ran down that hall, jumped on that girl, threw her down on the floor and was just beating her. And oh, look at y'all now people clapping. And she said, finally, when I got mama off my sister, she said, sister was down there and, and she was just, just saying, okay, okay, okay. And she said, and later on that day, she said, mama, what happened? Mama said, I don't know. Everything just went black. I don't know. (laughs) All of us lose our minds every now and then. And friends, when we lose our mind, God still comes after us. Aren't you glad about it? When we lose our mind, God still comes after us to correct us and to bring us back to our right minds. He doesn't leave us in our crazy selves. 
He loves us just like we are, but he says, I love you too much to let you stay crazy. And even when we lose our minds and we start attributing everything that we've accomplished to someone else, God comes after us and pursues us. See, he says in verse number eight of this chapter, chapter two, he says, she did not know. She did not know that I gave her grain. He says, she didn't even know it, that I was the one that gave her grain. He says, she did not know that I gave her the wine and the oil and multiplied her silver and her gold, which they prepared for Baal. God says, I was giving her all this resource and then she was giving the credit to somebody else. See, our God's a jealous God. And when he does something in us and through us, the least that we can do is give him the credit for it. I'm going to say it again. When he does something in us and through us, the least we can do is give him the credit for it. Sometimes people come, Pastor John, and they ask me, they say, well, have you grown this church in Columbus in the northeast section of Columbus? That section is dangerous. There are shootings in this section sometimes. And I tell them all I did was hear from God and do what he said to do and to God be the glory for what he's done. They said, well, you need to hold a church growth seminar. I said, I'll not do it because that'll make people think that I know what I'm doing and I don't. I said, every day I got to wake up and seek him for what I need to do. Every day I need to wake up and seek him for a strategy. I don't know what I'm doing. And if he doesn't give me a word and give me instruction, nothing could happen. And so all glory, all honor, all power goes to him. Even Jesus said at the end of his prayer, thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, thine is the glory. And if God does anything in our life, We ought to have the sense to say, listen, it was him that gave me the grain. He's the one that gave me the word. He's the one in verse number eight that gave me my joy. He's the one that gave me my power in the oil. He's the one that gave me my silver, my redemption. He's the one that gave me this godly character, my gold. He said, and I'm not going to give it the bell, but that's what they were doing. Giving it the bell. Verse number nine. Therefore, he says, therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its, in its time, my new wine in its season, I will take away my wool and I will take away my oil given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her newness in the sight of her lovers. God said, if you're going to give credit to others, then pretty soon, whatever we take for granted, whatever we become too familiar with, God says, I'll come and take it because you didn't value it. Friends, when Israel had the word taken away from them, it was 70 years before they heard the word again. They went into captivity and God gave them a prophetic word. If you go into Babylonian captivity, you're going to be there 70 years, man. That's seven decades. That's almost a century. You know, it took a long time for them to come out of Babylonian captivity. They come out with Ezra's Zerubbabel. And Zechariah, and they lay the foundation for the temple. In about 16 years, they rebuild the temple because they take a 16-year layoff. And then the next department that comes is Ezra comes out. And when he comes out, it's 70 years later. They haven't heard the word of God read in the temple for 70 years. Friends, let me tell you something. It says when Ezra opened up the book and opened up the scrolls, It says everybody stood at the reading of the word of God. And there are some traditions around the United States that when the word of God is read, the entire congregation will stand. 
When I was in the Soviet Union, when the communists had it, when you go to the Russian Orthodox Church, there was not even chairs or seats in the Russian Orthodox Church. because They said they believed it was an offense to sit before God. They stood and they worshiped. And friends, when the word of God was read in the day of Ezra, it said the people wept. It said not even the babies cried because they had not heard the word of God read for 70 years. So precious was the word in that day that he read it all the way from the beginning of the day all the way to the end of the day. And the people stood and they heard the reading of the word. You and I need to not be deceived to think that we'll always have available to us the word of truth. They thought that in Russia and then the communists took it over. And under, and under Stalin and under Lenin, all of the educated people were incarcerated or killed. Many people that were Christians were either put into the camps. They were killed in Bibles or stripped from them. I think it was in the early part of the 90s. I was with a couple of teams that took Bibles into the Soviet Union when the communists had it. It's fascinating that we met people that actually cried when they held the Bible in Russian for the first time in their life. We met pastors that Bibles were so scarce that they would take the book of John and they would take a knife and cut it. And one pastor, that's all the scriptures he had to preach from was the book of John. Somebody else would have the book of Matthew, somebody else, the book of Romans. And every few years, pastors would meet each other and they would say, man, I've been preaching from the book of John for three years. And he said, well, I've been preaching from the book of Romans and they would exchange. And I met pastors that they said, you know, we did not know what we had. I trusted in this nation that we will never just take the Bible for granted. I trust it will never take the scriptures for granted. Because when they became too familiar and took it for granted in Israel, God stripped it from them and they heard not the word of God for 70 years. Don't you ever take it for granted that you could just come to church and worship freely. It's not like this every place in the world. When you go to Malaysia, you put your life on the line. When I went to Malaysia, man, seven churches had been burnt down the month before I came. Just simply because they were in a Muslim republic, but they were standing for Christ. Don't ever take it for granted that you and I will not be tested. Don't ever take it for granted that we will always be like this because a lot of nations have thought it would always be like that, including Israel. And it got stripped away from them. And one of the things I've learned from history is that we don't learn from history. If we don't learn our history, we're doomed to repeat the mistakes of our past. Verse number 11 of chapter two goes on to say, I will cause all of her mirth to cease, her feast days and her new moons and her Sabbaths and all of her appointed feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her figs, even the things that were producing that. He said, I'll cut it all off. Many times a few years ago, that's why a lot of the systems begin to fail because people start looking at their portfolio more than they were looking at God. And God said, oh, you're going to look at your portfolio? I'll call some people to swindle it, some people to embezzle it, some people to divert it. And then I'll call markets to so drop that you'll have to look to me again. God knows how to weigh, knows a way of getting our attention. It says of which she said, these are my wages that my lovers have given unto me. So I will make them forced and the beast of the field shall eat them. And in verse number 13, chapter two, verse 13. He says there, and I will punish her for the days of the Baals. That's the multiple gods that she was worshiping and giving credit for what God has done 
where she burns incense and decked herself with earrings and with jewelries and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, says the Lord. See, the consequences of idolatry and looking towards other things and getting distracted in our loyalty and in our affection is that God promises that he will judge and he will correct. You see, the process is summed up in this statement in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. And if we can turn over there for just a moment, 12, 6 of Hebrews. Uh, our God is a God that loves us, but he, 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 he reserves the right to interfere in our affairs. <laughs> he reserves that right. And in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number six, it says, listen, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he scourges every son whom he receives. The New Living Translation says of Hebrews 6, uh, 12, 6, it says whom the Lord disciplines. No, it says for the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. God loves us the way that we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay the way that we are. And discipline is when God puts restrictions and boundaries around us. Now hear me. Different people will have different disciplines because we have different personalities and different interests. There are some children that a parent has to hold a heavy hand on because they're just kind of wild. Not kind of wild. They are wild. There are other children that are more compliant. So they need less of a heavy hand, but we need to help them to get to their heart so that they don't just do things out of a bad spirit, but they do it because they know that obedience is acceptable to God. And then there are some that there just need to be encouraged. A strong look, a raised voice will adjust their lives. My dad died when I was eight years old and my mother was 35 years old with three kids, three kids. I was eight years old when my dad died. My sister's 18 months older. My younger brother is 18 months younger. And it's fascinating that, that all of us are strong-willed individuals. But my mother said, I love you, but I sing in the choir. She was a choir singer. And it's fascinating. In our church, in the Baptist church, a choir set up behind the preacher while he was preaching. Set up there. And, it's, and, it's, and it was interesting to me. My mother could control, control three kids on the third row with an eyebrow. An eyebrow. She didn't have to raise her hand. She, she turned that head. You knew you were in trouble. Don't let her have to get up and come down. Because my mother believed in punishment at the scene of the crime. She, she didn't know nothing about take them to the restroom. Punishment at the scene of the crime. And so I kind of grew up like that. I know in Massachusetts, there's Massachusetts Children's Services and we have Franklin County Children's Services and some of what happened to us will be illegal today. But didn't it bring us? Didn't it keep us? Aren't you glad it happened and they didn't leave us to ourselves? 
It might have hurt for a moment as the text goes on. But it says in verse number seven in Hebrews 12, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as a son. And it says, well, what son is there which the father does not chasten or discipline? Now, if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then are you, uh, you are illegitimate, says New King James, it's nice, (laughs) and not sons. Says, furthermore, we had uh, human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Should we much, not much more, uh, repeatedly be in subjection, readily be in subjection to the fathers of spirits and live? For we indeed, for a few days, were chastened for us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. All God's after is holiness in our lives. And the way that God produces holiness in our life is correction. You see, the condition was that there was divided loyalty and affection. That was the context was that Gomer was going after foreign gods and the church goes after other things as a resource. The condition was she began to then give credit to everybody else for who she was. The command of God is to return to him because I have provided everything for you, says the Lord. And so we look and we find this call now. And the call now is to come and return to the Lord. Since you're in Hebrews, turn over to the Revelation chapter 2. The Revelation chapter 2. Because I believe that the Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 is so parallel with Hosea chapter 2. Because here, not only in Hosea chapter 2, do we find Gomer going after lovers, we find Israel going after foreign lovers, but in the Revelation chapter 2, we find the first century church that has lost their loyalty and their affection. So I come down to us today to call us a return to our first love, uh, which is our only love. See, in the Revelation chapter 2, there's these letters to these seven churches. I heard Pastor John mention this this morning. And the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hands and writes in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who do, who are evil. You have been tested, those that say that they are apostles and are not. And have found them liars. But you have persevered. And have patience. And have been. And have labored for my name's sake. And have not become weary. Notice this with all those commendations. Nevertheless. I have this against you. You have left. Your first love. What's the solution, Jesus? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do your first works. Else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from the place. People say, well, God did that to Israel, but he would never do that to the church. Don't tell that to the church at Ephesus. Because at the church of Ephesus, he said, even in the church, I will come and remove your lampstand. 
and cut off your light. When your light is now dim, now we begin to walk around in ignorance because light is symbolic of knowledge. Whereas darkness is symbolic of ignorance. And I am amazed at some of the ignorance and foolishness that goes on in the Lord's church today. And it's one thing it was if it was going in the local church and there was no tapes, no radio, no television cameras, and you just kept it inside. But when you get cameras and lights and put it on television, then after a while, folks say, those folks are crazy. And friends... He says, we need to return and do our first works else. I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from your place unless you repent. But this you have. Thank you, Lord, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You're holding some standards. He who has ears, let him hear what the spirit says to the church to him that overcomes I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of paradise uh, of God. Now, here's what we have as we bring this to a close tonight. We find a context is Homer and Gose- and, and Homer or, or Gomer and Hosea. That's the context. We find a condition, divided affections, divided loyalty. We find a command, come and return to me. God not only calls Israel back to him. Now we find this command, church, come back to me. You see, I believe in a world where there are so many distractions. It's just so easy to get distracted from the word and from our times of prayer and intimacy with God. Hear me. A few years ago, I had to go back and reassess my entire schedule. Because even working for the church, it's possible, friends. It's possible to get so much involved in the work of the church that we forget the Lord. It's possible to be on our journey in the Christ and be on the journey and Christ is someplace else. Mary and Joseph went to the temple one day. They did worship and on their way home, they left Jesus in the temple on their way home. They went seven full days before they discovered that he was there three days out, three days back. And they said, Jesus isn't with us. Where did you drop Jesus? (laughs) It's a question I need to raise. Because sometime in our busyness, we drop Jesus. And we're on a journey. We're moving. Everything looks good. And we look around and where Jesus? I'm sure Mary looked at Joe and said, I told you to watch that boy. He probably looked at her and said, the angel to one to talk to you about having this boy. <laughs> they said, well, both of us know it was God. We better find him. And friends, sometimes we can get so busy that we drop Jesus. And we're on the journey, but Jesus not on the journey with us. You know what they had to do? They had to stop, go all the way back and find out where they left him. When they found him, they found out that he was in there talking and asking and answering questions. That's amazing. A 12-year-old is talking with the scholars. Not only is he asking questions, that would be normal, but he's also answering questions. And they said, man, didn't you think we would be concerned about you? And he said, didn't you know it was time for me to be about my father's business? They put him back with the group and they returned to the home and they 
held those things in their hearts and friends. I believe it's possible even today to be on the journey of the church and drop Jesus someplace. And friends, many times we have to rearrange our schedules. I did a few years ago. Well, I knew that my schedule has gotten out of balance. I knew I had to have a day that I spent with my wife because you see, religious is consuming. It's consuming. And friends, if you and I don't maintain balance in our life, we can be a bush that is burned but not and consumed. And friends, God wants us to burn and not be consumed. And that's the thing that caused Moses to turn around and look in that sight. He said he saw a bush burning but was not consumed. Friends, religion can be consuming in its nature because there's always something to do. And I determined with myself, I said, Monday, I'm not coming in here. The first Monday, I come and lead a prayer group and then a city prayer group. But under that, I said, my family needs a day to see me because I'm not going to save everybody else's kids and then my kids go to hell. I'm not going to go pull your kids out of jail and then my kids going in jail. I said, I need a family day. I come in the office all day on Tuesday, usually from sunup to sundown. But on Wednesday, I study from home because I need a day with God. And people say, well, how can you work from home on Wednesdays? I said, I have to do so. I said, because when I come in here on Wednesday night, y'all going to expect that I've heard from God, right? I said, when I come in here on Saturday night for a Saturday night service and Sunday morning, two services, y'all are going to expect that I heard from God. And I said, and for me to hear from God, I need some time when a phone is not ringing, where somebody's not knocking at the door. And you know what the saints do? They say, they see you in the office. They say, you're not busy, are you? And pastors, I would love to be able to say, I'm always busy, but I say, no. And then they, then they lie. They say, well, can I have a few minutes? <laughs> liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> and ministry can't be consuming. And can't we become a bush that burns, but is not consumed? And I found out I had to get back to my first love. I had to get back to loving Jesus because there was days when I started in ministry where all I wanted to do was spend all day and all night in his word and in prayer and seeking and finding the wonderful things of God so that I could teach God's people. I remember those days. It was no problem for me because food was less important than study. I didn't have to call and organize fast. I found myself on the fast because just give me a bottle of water, a Bible and a commentary and maybe a concordance man. And I was ready to go and I could spend hours. Hours would turn into uh, to a whole day of just studying God's word. Do you remember your first love? Do you remember how you felt that day that you woke up, man, and he had been and he had washed you and forgiven you and you knew you were saved? You knew that eternal life was yours. And there was not enough hallelujahs you could say in that particular day. There was not enough grace that you could give to the Lord that day. There was not enough thank you Jesuses that you could give in that day. There was not enough time to lift your hands and hold them up and say, thank you Jesus, thank you Jesus. Because we were in that first love relationship. Hosea will call Gomer back to him. Listen, God will call Israel back to him. And today the church is being called back by God to himself. You see, the call is to remember our first love and to turn around and do our first works again that we have fallen from. And Ray, you can come to the keyboard now. And as we come back to that particular place, it's just a critical place that we need to come from. 
Because we just, last song that we did in that, in that worship medley, it just said, Jesus, Jesus, that one. Um, Holy and anointed one, Jesus. Play that little melody. Because there's, there was a time in our life, that's all it was about was just Jesus. We didn't have no titles. Didn't have no ministry. This was my ministry. Didn't have a lot that we had accomplished. All it was was just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You know, some of the old Pentecostals, they didn't have all the theology and modern revelation we had, but they knew Jesus. And some of them would just, when, when tragedy would hit, they wouldn't get mad at God and stop going to church. They'd just walk around the house saying, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And see, see, we need to get his name back on our lips. The Shulamite woman in the song of Solomon said, his name is like an ointment poured forth. Therefore, the daughters of Zion, they love you. People at our church, they come up to me sometime and they ask and they said, Pastor, we always notice that. You always call your wife by her first name, Teresa. Don't you have a, another name for her? And I said, no. I said, when I hear the name Teresa, it's one of the sweetest names that I know beside Jesus. I said, I haven't put any other names on her. I said, when I say Teresa, she knows my voice. I said, when she says Lafayette, I know her voice. And I said, and I love that name. Her name means diligent harvester. And I said, she harvested my soul. She harvested my attention. And I said, and she handles me well. And I said, there's nothing too important and too expensive for that girl. I said, you know, because I, I love her and we've maintained that first love relationship. Even when we travel, I always put away a little extra money in the bank. Because I want to make sure that she has what she needs. She's cared for me all of my life. I've been married to her longer than I was with my parents in their house. I got married at 23. I'm now I'm 62, almost 39 years. So the woman has cared for me. We took those old wedding vows that kept us in love for better, for worse. For richer, for poor. To love and to honor. In sickness and in health. Till death do us part. And I say, she's been there on the journey. And so I can't help but hear the sweetness of her name. But I always say that it's one of the most lovely names that I know because she knows. And I know it from her. There's a name that's higher than Lafayette and higher than Teresa. And that's the one that's called Jesus. I was in a barber shop and a guy started taking a few Hebrew lessons and he said, well, you know, the word J is not even in the Hebrew language. I said, ah, shut up. He said, it's Yahshua. And I said, that's great. I said, but when I say the name Jesus, demons come out of people. I said, when I say the name Jesus, people get healed. When I say the name Jesus with a J, I said, folks get saved. I said, when I say the name Jesus, angels come to attention. Earth comes to attention. Ah, even hell comes to attention. Because there's no other name given under heaven. Whereby men must be saved. Pastor John was doing a transition. I heard him say, listen, those, these elements, heaven, earth, 
and hell. They don't respond to the name Allah and Buddha and Krishna. There's a name that's above every name. How I love that name. He's anointed and he's the Holy One. His name is like honey to my lips. His name is sweet. And even in times of trouble when I don't know what to pray, I can just say the name. And you know what? I feel like God approaches and say, does somebody say the name? And we got to get back to our first love before we call our banker, before we call our financial planner, before we call our educator, before we call our mentor. We need to get back to that first love, Jesus. Everybody say the name, Jesus. Jesus. Say it again. Say it again. Oh, how sweet the name. And don't let it be from Sunday to Sunday before you say the name. Man, when you go into your office, just say the name Jesus. When you get ready to take that test when you're in college and in your university, just say the name. Sometimes, you know, we've studied all we wanted to and and sometimes it's still not coming together. I've just learned how to say the name even in the exam room. Jesus. I remember one time my daughter had studied so hard. And she said, Dad, pray for me. I got an exam and I need to get a, at least a B on this exam. I said, well, Yolanda, did you study all that God told you to do? And she said, well, I did the best I could. And she said, but Jesus knows my heart. <laughs> and I said, he sure does, daughter. And with that, we're going to come and say, Jesus, add to her wisdom. And I said, and before you pick up your pen... For you pick up your pencil before you go on the computer for the testing, whatever mode it may be in. I said, just say the name. That name works in hospitals. I found out that the name works in nursing homes, friends. Find out the name works when you're broke. Find out the name works when you have limited funds and you're in a shopping center. And you look at your money and you know what groceries you need and He could just say the name. I did that one time when we were going through some economic challenge and God had me walk by a meat counter and I saw manager specials today. And I said, Jesus, you're just too good. You knew I was coming through here just at this time. When you marked down the chicken and you marked down the steak and (laughs) had the day, all these canned goods, 10 for 10. A dollar a piece. Stuff that was two dollars the other day. Now a dollar a piece. Jesus. He knows when you don't have money for gas, you can say the name. Remember, I was a little short a few months ago. Went to the gas station. Knew I needed to fill it up, but I knew my money only was so much. And when I slid the little card in there, it says, you got two dollars and 40 cents off per gallon. You better believe I said the name. (laughs) Say the name. There's a name that's higher than every name. You know what the Lord longs for? He longs for the same thing that Hosea longed for from Gomer, just to hear my name. He longs for the same thing that Israel should have been giving to Jehovah. Longs for the same thing that we as a church should be longing for. I'm going to close our time this, this night by just a moment of worship. And we're going to sing that chorus again. We're going to sing it again. And the reason we're going to sing it 
is because I believe that the touch of God was resting on that chorus right there. We're just going to say the name and talk about his name as honey to my lips. Water to my soul. His name is, his word is like a lamp unto my feet. That name is Jesus. You can remain seated or you can stand, but let's worship. Go ahead. Let's sing it now. Go ahead. Jesus. Let's just worship him. Jesus. Fall in love with him again. Yes, say his name. Jesus. Thank you, Lord.
continue. Everybody, just pray in the Holy Ghost for a few moments. Let's go ahead. Tell Jesus how much you love him. Forgive us for any distractions, for divided loyalties. We say the name. You are the holy and anointed one. 
and we remember our first works. Oh God, we'll say the name when we go home. We'll say the name when we go to work. We'll say the name when we're driving because there's no other name that's sweeter. You are the holy and anointed one. Your name is like honey to my lips. You're sweet. Thank you for saving us. We love you. We adore you. We admire you. Now, Father, thank you for stirring us as a body, but also stir us individually as we move forward. And we thank you today, Father, for all that you've done tonight. Thank you for bringing us back. If we've lost any ground, we regained it tonight. Now we're going to maintain it and we're going to move forward in you. You are indeed the holy and anointed one. 